Well, it's a real joy of mine to be able to continue um, our study in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, where we, we began a couple weeks ago, we're just going to be kind of walking through um, over the next couple of months. Um, hopefully, um, every single one of you have been given one of those Genesis scripture journals when you walked in over the past few weeks. That's just our gift to you as a church. We want to make sure that you have a place not only to continue reading the book of Genesis, um, but also a place where you can take notes, uh, because this is a, an important book uh, for us. There's a reason why this is the very first book in our collection of books, which we know as the Bible, the Holy Bible. Now today, we will be zooming in on a passage that we actually uh, went over last week. It's part of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. But I want to take a little bit more time to unpack the, the significance of what we read. Because I believe some of the most foundational truths, church, some of the most foundational aspects of who you are as a person can be found in that opening chapter. And I think they're absolutely necessary for us to really understand today. Because quite honestly, if we were to take a, a survey of all of the major cultural issues that surround our community, our world today, most of the most contentious issues, we see the answer or at least the reason why they might be contentious in the opening of Genesis. Specifically, in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30, which we're going to be at this morning, we actually see God hone in and give clarification on the very thing that seems to have the most distortion in our world today. And so we want to just look at that slowly this morning. And so if you're just new or visiting, that's our plan. Um, one is we want to just welcome you into our study. And even if you don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, it's actually a really good week to be here. Uh, because we're going to be looking at why do Christians make such a big deal about humanity? Or specifically, when Christians say that all people are made in the image of God, what do they mean by that? Does that mean that they all believe that they, they reflect God, like they're all these, these little gods walking around? What does that actually mean? So today's actually a really good day uh, for all of us to be here as we... We explore that idea. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean that we are made male and female? What does it mean that God has actually given humanity a job to do? That's what we're going to be looking at in those few verses out of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30. Now, let me go ahead as I normally do. Is I like to take time just pray one more time before we actually read the text. And what I like to do during that time is I want to pray for you. But as I pray for you, will you please pray for me, and then we'll read the text together. Well, Father, I want to just take another moment before we actually look at the words that you have carried along through your spirit for us to be able to know and enjoy and delight in this morning. God, I pray for every man, woman, and child, even those listening in online, that, that God, that you would just give them a an outpouring of grace this morning that they would be able just to to rightly understand who you are to rightly understand the uniqueness in which you actually created humanity under god we need your help in that god so spirit i ask that you would illuminate this text for all of us 
Allow us just to rightly see who you are. God, I pray for our kiddos in the room next door, for those who are in there. God, I pray as they're learning about the exact same thing that we're learning in here, that you would just give those, those teachers wisdom as they disciple just the littlest hearts that we get the privilege of, of having on Sunday. And God, that they may, along with all of us, walk out of church this morning knowing that they are loved and created by a holy and wonderful God. And it's to that end we ask Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So hopefully you guys have found that. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Uh, that will be on page 1, I believe, in those uh, ESV Bibles around the room. Let me go ahead and just read the text for us. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're, we're thankful for God's word. All right, so what I'd like to do this morning is to highlight three areas or, or three topics in which we see in these verses. So if you're a note taker, here are the, the three verses or the three topics I'm going to be walking through. First, we see the special work of God in the creation of humanity. The special work of God. Second, we're going to see what it means then to be made in the image of God. What does that actually mean? What significance does that have? And lastly, we're going to take a quick look at the blessing in the mandate that God has actually given every person as an image bearer to do in this world. All right, so point one, the special work of God and humanity. And this is so cool, church. I don't care if you guys have heard this a thousand times. I want you to hear with fresh ears. This is absolutely amazing. Because think back to the, the creation narrative. Right? Throughout the days of creation, what did God do to bring creation into existence? He spoke. Right? He spoke and things were, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So over ten times we saw that God said and there was. And so God spoke all these wonderful things into existence. Like light and the separation of light and darkness. The earth and its plants. The birds of the air. Right? The fish of the sea. The sun, the moon, the stars, right? We saw how God spoke all those things into existence. A marvelous display of his power. And I would remind you, who was that original audience in which Moses, the author of Genesis, was speaking to? A bunch of former Egyptian slaves, right, whose parents had been enslaved for a number of years, hundreds of years. And so the first time they are hearing about all these things that they were told to worship. 
all these things that they were told that were little gods, these demigods that needed them, like the sun and the moon and the stars and the Nile River, all these things that they were told to worship as God, they were said, no, 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 you don't worship them as God. They were actually just spoken into creation from the one and true God. And that one and true God is the one who has led you out of Egypt and is leading you to his promised land. Right? So they are learning about God. And I think like many of us, right? just the creation narrative in and of itself kind of has our heads spinning a little bit. Like, I don't, even, I don't know how that all worked out. I don't know how that all fits together. Right? And that's why we, we love, you know, the, the sciences where we can explore this in depth of, of the uniqueness of nature and how earth is perfectly suited for human life. That's a good thing to study and look at. But the best part of the story was not that God spoke everything into existence, ex nihilo. The best part of the creation narrative is what we see starting in verse 26. Everything was building up. So God could highlight the climax of his creation. And what was the climax of his creation? The creation of humanity. Right? Where we are told about the uniqueness of the creation of humanity. That it wasn't just spoken into existence. But rather there was this special care. There was this special moment where God created humanity. That's what we see. So if you look at your Bibles, look at verse 26. Where we see the story change a little bit. Slow down, if you will. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man, unlike any other creation, we are told was given a uniqueness to it. That everything else was just spoken into creation. This is the first time we see, no, this is going to be different. This is going to be special. We are going to make man in our image which I'll unpack that image and likeness here in a moment. But first, I actually need to pull out some of the theology that we get about God in that text. Because remember, Genesis is not just a story about who humanity is or who we are. The bigger story that Genesis is trying to tell is the story of who God is. And I believe that we actually see that in part in verse 26. Because notice the language. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. There's a language of plurality there that we haven't seen before. A little bit in verse 1, if we were to go back in verses 1 and 2, but more distinct here in verse 26. Now, some scholars have differed in their opinions on what does that mean? What is what is you know, the language of plurality actually mean there when God said, let us make man in our image. And let me just give you some of the, the three major interpretations. The first one is that God was speaking in a majestic tone, kind of in a formal sense, that it was not necessarily meant to be taken literally, but just that he was speaking in a majestic tone, kind of like how a, if a king would speak in almost a third person. He has done this, speaking of himself, not somebody else. Now, although that might be plausible, because we do see that language used in Genesis, I would say I don't think it's the best interpretation, simply because of the repetition of plurality that we actually have in the verses. 
that there was a, a clear indication of what he was trying to get to. So the second interpretation then is that God was actually speaking to the heavenly courts. He was speaking to all of his angels, saying, let us, speaking of God and the angels, let us make man in our image. Now, the problem with that is the rest of the Bible, is that nowhere do we see God ever saying that the agent of creation was anything besides himself and himself alone. And furthermore, actually in verse 27, we see that God was made in his image, in the image of God, not the image of God and of angels. Now, lastly, and this is an interpretation that I think, uh, well, I know that I hold on to, but I think is also the most plausible in the text, is that this is the beginning hint of how our God is plural in nature. Our God is plural in nature. The beginning marks of the Trinity, if you will. Where we believe there's only one God, but that one God has eternally existed at three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, though, I'll admit that this is not explicit in the text at all. Right? Those other you know, interpretations you could use, but I think and I believe that God is having this Trinitarian conversation that we are getting invited into listen into a little bit. And I think it's the beginning marks of that Trinitarian theology that we will see play out the rest of Scripture. One of the greatest fallacies that we have to avoid, though, when it comes to theology, church, is called um, a word-concept fallacy. Just because you don't see an exact wording in the Bible doesn't mean that the truth of that is not implied throughout the Bible. And then one of the greatest examples is Trinity. Right, that word Trinity. You will not see the word Trinity anywhere in these in this, these sixty six books that make up the Bible. You will not see that word ever written down. But you will see this concept that our God is one, but yet also three throughout. And so, the best way that theologians have described that is calling it a Trinity: one God eternally existed as three different persons. So I I unpack that a little bit because. I think it is opening the doors. As you study the rest of your Bible, you will see that language of plurality um, spoken about, and it's important. Even later at the end of our service today, we are going to recite what's known as the Nicene Creed together. And it was a creed that the early church put together to really express its understanding of the Trinity. It's important for us to confess what do we and what have Christians throughout history believed about God. But let's, let's talk about image and likeness, because I think that's the primary point that Moses is trying to get to. What does that mean, to be made in the image and likeness of God? Well, three times in the book of Genesis, we are told about humanity being made in the image of God. That humanity alone is made after that. And it's not just Adam and Eve. In fact, if you look at that word uh, man in verse 27, I believe, it's the Hebrew word adam which is the proper name for all of humanity. So it's not just Adam and Eve as individual historical persons, which is, they were, but when he says, let us make man in our image, he's talking about all of humanity. All of humanity. And we see that actually carry over in the other verses that use this image and likeness in Genesis. In Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, we see that God creates, still creates man in his image, and also in Genesis 9, 6, 
both of those texts are what are known as post-fall or post-Genesis 3, which we'll get to when we walk through those texts. And I'm not going to really go into detail on those, but I'll give you a clue that every time we see God speak about humanity being made in the image and likeness of God, we are told about why humanity matters, why it matters to God. Because here's what image of God does not mean. I spoke of this earlier. It doesn't mean that we look like God, okay? It does not mean that we are physical representations of what God looks like. That's not what this image means or likeness means. It also doesn't mean that we are little gods, right? That we're on our way to becoming God, as some teach. No, what, what bearing the image or likeness, and by the way, those terms are used synonymously in the Old Testament. What it means to be made in the image of God is to really have dignity and value before its creator. There is a uniqueness there. Jonathan Edwards, he was an a, a early American theologian, a brilliant man, and he spoke repeatedly about the image of God. And every time he spoke and taught about it, he always brought it back to, you know what image of God means? It means that your fellow man, your fellow woman, you have unique dignity and value before me because God has created you, that you are unique in his eyes. Jesus himself would talk about this. When we study the gospel of Mark, um, now is almost uh, a couple years ago, I think, or maybe a year and a half ago now. When we studied the gospel of Mark, we actually saw this encounter with Jesus where he spoke about this. And I want to show you this. This is from Mark 12. And it's when, basically, these religious rulers are coming to Jesus and they're asking him about taxes and what to do with Caesar and the like. And this is what Jesus responds with. Let me show you this. He says, starting in verse 15, he says, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And why did they marvel at him? Because Jesus was connecting this image and likeness that they found on a coin all the way back to Genesis 1. And saying, humanity belongs to God because humanity bears the image of God, the likeness of God. And scripture is clear about this from Genesis to Revelation that humanity, unlike any other creation, which I know your dogs are important, right? I know you love them. Cats, maybe? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but they do not have the role and bear the image of God like humanity does. And they need to be treated as such. So, Let's look back at verse 27 in Genesis. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now let me ask you a question then. Was there a condition put upon this image bearing? Meaning that God said, Let us put our image on humanity if... 
Right? Is there a conditionality put on being made in the image of God? The answer is no. There's not. Adam and Eve have not done anything yet. The rest of humanity had not done anything yet. But yet we see a clear indication that they were bare the image of God. So there's no condition upon it. And here's where it's really practical for us then. That means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your size. You are made in the image of God. And you have dignity and value to your creator and by default to every single one of us. That's a truth of scripture in which we must uphold. That there is a holiness, a set-apartness to humanity that we have to acknowledge. Speaking really plainly then that as Christians who believe this account that we see here in the beginning of the Bible, that we have to be on the front lines of spearheading any type of evil that would say, no, you being have value and dignity, there's a condition upon it. You have to be a certain size. You have to be able to give something to society in order for us to say that you have dignity and value and are important. We, re- we will reject that and we'll actually fight against it. And in case I'm not being clear enough, that means scripture and science are clear that at the moment of conception, that you bear the image of God and that you have dignity and value before him. And we will do everything in our power to make sure that is known and protected. Now, hear me on this though, because I know this is, this is, I can feel just a weight, like everybody's like, oh, what's he going to say next? It just doesn't mean that it's not complex, right? It doesn't mean that especially on issues of unwanted pregnancies, that there's not complex conversations that we need to have. But here is my plea to us that killing the baby is not the answer. We can do better than that. We can talk through things, right? We can enter into those hard conversations and go, well, we believe that every, every life matters. And by the way, this is not just a baby thing, right? This is at every stage of human life where we go, no, it matters, you have value, you have dignity. I don't care what you are able to give or not give to society, what you're able to do on your own or not do on your own. That does not mark whether we put the image of God on you or not. There's no condition to it. And so we have to do what many are not willing to do and enter into hard conversations, but not from a street corner or behind a keyboard. Okay? We enter into hard conversations by joining into with good organizations or maybe just complex situations and going, we know that there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of factors involved. And so we want to help. We want you to know that you have value. If there's a baby involved, the baby has value. And we want to see how we can help. How can we step in? That's what we want to commit to as a church. Not because we have a political ideology, okay? It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what God's word has told us here in Genesis 1. That's why we do it, right? I'm not promoting certain legislation. That's not what Genesis 1 is promoting. I'm promoting the image of God, which we do see in Genesis 1. Now, certainly, does that unroll into other things? Absolutely. But we need to get to the basic of what's foundational to us right now and that's what we're doing 
All right, now, since I'm just on the controversial train, let's go ahead and continue to look at verse 27. At the end of verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two genders. Two genders. This was also part of God's perfect design for us. Not just that we would have dignity and value, church. But also we'd have established differences between our sexes that God highlights. And by the way, he doesn't highlight in every, any other creation. No animal. Even though we know that there's, there's different sexes in creation. God goes out of his way specifically here to highlight a distinction of maleness and femaleness within humanity. And why is that? Why is that? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons, but let me just give you one that's relevant for us right now. Because I believe that God knew, because he knows all things, that in a moment like ours right now, where we live, with the conversations that are surrounding us right now, when there's so much confusion on who has value, who has dignity, if there's a gender or not, God is not a God of confusion. And he says, let me tell you, let me plead with you that I am a good creator God and if I can create everything in this world then I can be trusted in how you are and he speaks into that and God gives that clear note of you were created male and female he doesn't make a mistake we can trust him right our maleness our femaleness is not socially constructed not mentally constructed aspects of our lives, but rather it flows from a God-given identity that he has bestowed upon us. And hear me really clearly on this then. This means that you belong to him. That your identity is whatever God says you are. Right? If he's the one who created you, if he's the one who spoke first, he gets the first word. And if he is the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end, guess what? He also gets the last word. And we believe that and we trust that. That can be very difficult for many of us. But I just want to simply encourage you that, that God is not indifferent to the issues that we see in our world. Right? He's, not, he's not standing back today and go, oh, I had no idea that you guys would take this and run in a direction that you're going right now. That doesn't happen. See, God knew. And, and so he put... The very words that which we need to know and believe right here at the beginning of our Bibles. And what a gift that is. Because we live in a world that demands, really does demand that your gender or your sexual preferences or your work or just about anything become your identity rather than being made in the image of God. I think we see that. And it's why these conversations are so tough, to be quite honest. Because for many, to not approve of a certain aspect of their life is not to approve of them as people. It's tied to who they are. If, you're, if you won't accept me and what I'm projecting, this is my identity, then you're not accepting me as a person, as a human being. And we're going, no, 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 no. You're made in the image of God. You have dignity and value in which I will do my best to uphold. But we are simply saying what you do is not who you are. Who you are is who God has created you to be. And so as a church, here's just really practically, this means that we are going to open wide our doors 
to anyone and everyone to come in here and join us in our pursuit of what has God created us to be. We're going to open wide our doors for that. You see, it's the message that the Israelites needed to hear and embrace. But it's also the message for us. That as we live in a fallen world, a sinful world, even though maybe the times are a little bit different, the human heart, the human struggle seems to be the exact same throughout all of time. Because even as we will see in the coming weeks, when the fall happens and what the fall means is when basically sin entered the picture for the first time, that image of God was distorted on us. It was broken. It was fractured. Not that we have it, but our ability to see it and value it in others. And even though there's a lot of confusion then out there, the only way that we we know then to how to call us back how to begin walking in the direction which god has called us to walk back towards is by highlighting what the person and work of jesus and let me show you how this actually speaks directly into the image of god conversation in colossians 1 the very passage i read for our call to worship this morning we see paul speak of jesus as he is the image of god He wasn't created in the image of God like you and I are, but he is the image of God, the full representation of God. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the gospel of light is also the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the goal of our image bearing is to do what? To actually behold the image of God, the person and work of Christ. Let me show you something in Romans 8. This is in the New Testament. I'm going to show you this this plan of redemption, this plan of image bearing, and and why, even though it's been distorted, God's been on the move on this. Through the atonement of Jesus, right, through his resurrection, there's this plan to renew the image of God back to its fullness. So you can see this from Romans 8, 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined, right? This is speaking of the plan of redemption, that God was going to save sinners back to himself. And what was that plan? To atone for sins? Absolutely. Right? For the guilty to be declared innocent? Absolutely. But here, Paul highlights what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's what I think all the Bible is getting at. Not only do we want every person to have value and dignity in this world, because that was given to them when they were created, but we also want every person to know Christ, to believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, and be ultimately conformed back to the image of God for all of eternity. That's what we're going after. This is the good news of the person and work of Jesus, church. This is what he's going after. Now, if you have your Bibles open still, let me highlight something else in Genesis. Go ahead and look at verses 28 through 30. Let me just read 28 for us. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So sometimes when we think about the image of God, we only, we only talk about it in that dignity and value, which is there. But sometimes we forget that it's not just dignity, but there's also almost a destiny, if you would, about how that image of God is supposed to be lived out. And so in verses 28 through 30, we have what theologians call the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate of all humanity. That we, being made in the image of God, are actually given a capacity to live that out in this world. And that's a capacity to live that out under, with rule and reign under the lordship of God. That he created everything, but then has placed humanity in this special role to bring more fullness to his creation. Not in, a, not in a sense like we create, but we cultivate what he has created. Right? It's the language of, of farming, if you would. Right? It's the, the language of, the, of a garden. What do you do with a garden? You cultivate it. Right? You protect it. You make sure that the things growing are the things that you want to grow. And so here we see humanity being made in the image of God given a domain to rule and subdue the earth. Now, that does not mean to abuse the earth. That does not mean to do whatever you want. It means that you are a steward of what God has entrusted to you. Right? So Christians should be the ones on the front line saying, how do we cultivate the very resources which God has given to humanity in this earth? How do we bring about flourishing an ultimate uh, enjoyment to the things in which God has created us under his domain. That's what we're called to do. And it's a, it's a mandate that is still in place. Right? There wasn't a condition upon it. So let me get practical then. What does this mean for us? It means that your home matters. Right? What you do in your home matters because that's a, a part in which God has entrusted you to rule and cultivate and subdue for his glory. Same with your job. Your, the job that you have was, is given to you by God for this very purpose, right? It's not meaningless, right? Sometimes, and pastors are the worst on, on this, to be quite honest, is, is we can highlight the work of ministry or maybe the work of preaching and teaching the word of God as the most important thing that every person should strive to do. Like you're kind of a, a, a second-class human unless you're doing this. That's wrong. We don't see that here at all. We actually see this, this mandate to cultivate in all areas of life. That's why he highlights all these different created aspects, saying there's not one place in which he doesn't want humanity to go and belong and to help bring flourishing to. So your home matters. Your job matters. Your work matters. It wasn't... A lot of times we believe that work is simply a product of the fall. It's not. Right? Work was given before the fall. Now, no doubt we'll see in a couple of weeks that work was made harder because sin entered into the picture. But work itself is part of God's good design for each and every one of us. We were made to do that. But let me highlight one aspect to the image of God. Out of all the things in which God has given humanity to rule over, Right? The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the plants, the livestock. 
the one thing that God never says for humanity to rule over or to have dominion over is other people. That humanity is not to have sovereign rule over other humanity. That certain humans are not to say, I will subdue you. You belong to me. You, we do not see that in Genesis 1 at all. And why is that? That's going back to verses 26 and 27. That all humanity is made in the image of God. So we are to have rule and authority, you know, wide stewardship over all the resources which God has given us. But yet never say to another person that you are less than me and that I can rule over you. Right? Do you see how Genesis 1's distortion or how our great enemy, Satan, if he wants to really cause havoc in the world, where does he have to start? He starts with what God said here in Genesis 1. And we'll actually see that in the coming weeks. That this is the very area in which God tries to or not God, Satan tries to distort because he knows that if we distort Genesis 1, that's going to unravel into all kinds of areas in our life. Now, furthermore, we're not only called to cultivate and subdue, but we're also called to be fruitful and multiply, right? To have kids. That's the, the easiest interpretation of that is to have kids. Kids are a good thing. They are blessing from the Lord. Now, if it's not obvious enough, that means that we as a church, we need to talk about kids as if they are a blessing from God, right? We live in a world where it's really easy to fall into the trap where all you do is complain about kids, right? It's really easy to do so. Child rearing is not easy. You know, I'll be, I'll be the first to admit that. But I have to watch the way that I talk. Am I showcasing to my kids that they have value and dignity and they're actually part of God's good plan to bring fullness to this earth? Or do I talk about as if they are a burden? These are tough questions that we have to ask ourselves. Especially as our kids grow up in a world that doesn't want to celebrate them, we as a church need to be on the front line celebrating them. A lot of kids don't feel like they have value and dignity. I said this um, in the men's group a couple weeks ago. But when my littlest girl, for those of you who don't know, my littlest girl Carly was in the hospital last week. Uh, last week or two weeks ago. I've lost track of time. Um, she was battling some, some respiratory issues, so she needed some breathing treatments. And while we were in the pediatric wing for a number of days... Uh, we found out that most of the pediatric wing at Carson Tahoe Hospital, where we were at, is full of kids there because of depression and self-harm. Not because of necessarily a physical thing that needs to be fixed. And ever since I heard about that, I've been thinking about this passage. Because we have failed on so many ways to take Genesis 1 and actually to live it out in our lives. And I, I want to be at the front lines of telling kids that they have value and dignity and some of the expectations that they're putting upon themselves are not true and they're not real and they're lies from our enemy and lies from our culture. So we want to be on the front lines of that. So the cultural mandate of child rearing is, is clear, but it's also not exclusive. And let me, let me speak to that. Because it's not called to be for all people. I know that there are many people, many people inside even this church, that 
have not been called to rear children for a variety of reasons. Maybe they can't, or they, they feel like God has called them to use those, those, uh, that money and resources elsewhere, or it's not the season of life that they're, no, they're in anymore. And I want to make it very clear to, to all of us as well that if you have physical kids or not, does not make you more human or not. Does not make you more faithful or not. I think we're called to have kids if we're able to. We are called if that's what God has placed just in, in the homes in which, which we have. But it's not exclusive. And the reason we know it's not exclusive is because who did not have kids, but yet was the most human person ever? Jesus. Or we could go outside of Jesus. We could go to person, people like Paul. Right? Having kids is although a, a blessing from the Lord, it's not exclusively the only thing that you were created to do. But we all do have a role. And let me even connect this further on of where the Bible connects this. Because Christians, we actually have the greatest role to, to be fruitful and multiply, not by just bringing physical children into the earth, but spiritual children. Right? What's one of the first things when Jesus is demonstrating and teaching about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of him? He uses the language that you have to be born again. You have to be born again, that there's a whole new identity that's been bestowed upon you, that you're a whole new creation. And so, church, we get the privilege then of a part of our cultural mandate that we get to have now is linked to the Great Commission, and that is to go and therefore make disciples. So for many of us, the way that we bring children into this earth is by teaching them about Christ, by asking God for the work of the new birth in them. And taking what is dead and old and bringing a new heart based off of his finished work on the cross. All of us have been given the privilege to participate in that aspect of the cultural mandate. All right, almost done here. So church, I hope that you have seen today what a unique calling that has been placed on every single one of our lives. A calling and identity that we did not earn, but yet was bestowed upon us from the loving, good, powerful, creative God himself. We need to be reminded of that. Because we are quick to forget, don't we? It's why I tell my kids, every time I place them in bed, last thing I ever tell them is, says, hey, I need you to remember something. And they go, what is that? And I said, you need to remember before you close your eyes tonight that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Because he loves you. I'm quoting Psalm 139. And why do I tell them that? Because I know that they are going to be constantly bombarded with accusations or thoughts that who they are is not who they should be. That they should be something else. Or that their identity is something that they need to go out and find. Not an identity that they've been given. And I want them to know that God loves them. And I want them to know that. And they can know that not only based off that they are created fearfully and wonderfully by him, but also that God has demonstrated that love for them by going to the cross. See, my job was to teach them that the God of Genesis 1 is the God who went to the cross for them. Is the God who loves them. Is the God who their parents are putting all their trust into and inviting them to do the same. 
And that this God who has created them and loves them has also given them work to do, not to earn his love, but because they already have it, that their life is meaningful and purposeful. And it's not something that they have to go on some crazy adventure to find. But it's written. It's given. And we want to celebrate that. So church, let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray one more time, and then we're going to respond in just uh, musical worship confessional worship about the God who has made us in his image. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Well, Father, I thank you that you are a wonderful, mighty, loving God. A God who we want to delight in. A God who we want to trust. And God, we struggle to trust you, especially with our identity. So God, help us. Help us take the words of Genesis 1, which you have preserved for us all these years, that we would be able to walk out of here just loving you and cherishing you and your work in us far more than when we first walked in. And God, we thank you. And it's in your mighty name we pray.